tried to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Huh? I do the car. You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> the Cult-Worthy Classic. A cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult cinema made before 1970. Your host Antonio Palacios and a weekly guest will deep dive into these films to prove if they are in fact cult-worthy. And so without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio and this is the Cult-Worthy Classic episode 24. And it blows my mind that I am almost at 25 episodes. That's 25 weeks of this side project niche podcast that was an offshoot of my original show, The Cultworthy Podcast. And I've said it on many episodes in the past where I decided to do this show to talk about obscure films and cult classics made before 1970 because these films deserved a little bit more respect than to be bundled up in a four-part review section of horror films, slasher films, creature films, revenge films. So with this show, I've brought on weekly guests for the past 23 weeks to talk about these films in detail. We deep dive into them, and what's exciting is that sometimes these are films that people have seen, they have a deep love for, and it gives them an opportunity to talk about it with me, or sometimes it is a first-time watch and they get to experience these amazing films for the very first time. Now, as I hit episode 25, it makes me reflect on what I've done in the past with this show. And here's the thing with a new podcast. You know, they always start off small, and eventually you get a solid block of listeners. For me, that was around episode 13. Now, I do have a very solid group of listeners for the original show, and I'm not expecting all of them to listen to the Cult-Worthy Classic as well, but I'm saying this because I feel that there were some earlier episodes that got missed, that didn't get all the listens that I was hoping for. So what I've done with this particular episode is I've gone back to some of these conversations of some of these films, and I'm bringing you some clips, some snippets. Yes, this is a clip show, with hopes of you going back and revisiting some of these conversations or viewing some of these films that were discussed early in the life of the podcast. I've had some amazing guests. I've had Ian from the Cult Connections podcast talking about the film Detour. I've had Matt from Decaying with the Boys talking about Night of the Living Dead. One of my favorite guests is Melissa from the Good Evening Kitties podcast, which is a podcast that's totally devoted to Tales from the Crypt, talking about two great classic horror suspense films, that being The Sadist and Peeping Tom. And these are guests that I hope to have on again in the future many times over as this show continues to grow. So please sit back with me today and enjoy some of my favorite snippets from the earliest days of the podcast to the most recent episodes. So without further ado, enjoy. My very first episode of this podcast was with my friend Nikki E of the Here's Looking at You film podcast where we talked about The Bad Seed. Here is one of my favorite moments from that episode. Enjoy. As we think back and talk back on this film and you see all these moments where Christine is like trying to put the puzzle together and she has all these thoughts and all these dreams and feelings, she 
maybe actually was a bad seed. She has those thoughts in her head. She sees the calculations of Rhoda, but she's lived such a, a solid life and maybe a deconstructed life from her parents that she's never acted on them. But by the way she deconstructs what Rhoda's doing, do you think that she probably has a little bit of that in her as well? You know, I think she might. I think that she is very concerned with appearances. Everything is appearance for her. And Again, I 50s. Think even Hortense recognizes that everything is appearance for her. She even says, like, you probably had your debut in society. Like, I, I see what kind of person you are. I know that you have to put on for people. I get it. And everyone gets it. One of the, the first exchange that we see um, Christine have with Mrs. Fern, her concern is whether kids like Rhoda. Is she popular? It's like, yeah, do people want to hang out with her? Not like, do you think something's wrong with her? Like a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. Have you seen anything weird about her? She just wants to make sure that people don't think that anything is weird about her. And I think it's because she recognizes sort of those same qualities in herself that she's repressed. Um, the, the whole scene of her talking about when I don't I mean we don't know if really this happened or if this is just in her imagination but saying that she like ran out of the house and went and hid in the woods because mm -hmm. you know she was so scared of something you know and it's just the, like those small moments where you're like there is something hidden in her past mm -hmm. there's something hidden in her life that like we will never know about um much like there's something about Rhoda that other people will never know about because it's been hidden so well. So I think there's, I mean, there's gotta be a little something in you for you to- uh... To recognize it. And also at the same time, it's like, I, I, I'm not a mother, I'm, I'm a father, but there is that thing where it's like, she would rather take her own daughter's life than hey, let her I... daughter be arrested and be held responsible. She would rather let everyone in the world be wondering what really happened and give them no answers or closure than face the humiliation and the pain of having a daughter exposed. So her answer would be, maybe I should just put her to sleep. Yeah, and and put her to sleep in one of the, like, in one of the sweetest ways possible. Like reading her a, a bedtime story. story. <laughs> what a motherly way to like take your child out. That's such good writing, that whole scene. <laughs> it's so quiet, it's so peaceful, it's so serene, yet it's so painful because you're like, oh my God, she's really going to do this. Yeah, and then, and the juxtaposition of like one of the most violent acts mm -hmm. towards herself, like it would have been very easy for her with that bottle of sleeping pills to mm -hmm. just do the same to herself. Mm -hmm. But having this very like peaceful moment for her daughter who had done these like many heinous things while like committing this bloody violent act on herself. Again, it goes to what you spoke about, the idea where she feels responsible for something that wasn't even her fault. It's almost like I deserve the ugly death. My daughter still needs to go out as gently and beautifully as possible. I want her to look good in her coffin. I want her to be remembered pretty. Again, it's that mother's love and that self-reflection of a failure, even though she was probably one of the best film mothers I've seen in any movie from any period. Honestly, like I, 
I watched this and I, I I thought to myself, this rivals any Hitchcock movie that I've seen any day. Like the the way that these women represented themselves on screen. Um, I I I kept thinking when whenever Hortense came on screen, I kept thinking like she played this role better than like some men that I like. I could have seen mm-hmm. a if there there was a drunk father. Mm-hmm. She like having a man play that role, but like her, the rawness of how she played it, it was just it was better than I was just like she's she's better than any man that I've seen on the screen the whole time. I mean, it, it, beautiful, so beautiful. Yeah, again, like I said, the, it's a female driven film. It's a female driven movie, and rightfully so. Like those performances, I think, are even more touching and painful and really get your emotions going because we're seeing a a really broken, fragile, yet determined woman where if it was a man back in the 50s, more than likely it'd be like throwing fists, you know? My friend Mikey Jones made his first appearance on episode two where we talked about the 1965 cult-worthy classic Who Killed Teddy Bear? One of my favorite suspense thrillers of all time, which was a blind discovery and here is a little snippet of that conversation. And I've always considered you like my secondary resource for film knowledge because I've always been most knowledgeable in things from the 60s on up. And you're my research for everything golden age, pre-code, silent film era. And I've learned a lot from you. And we have a lot of interesting conversations, which is why I wanted you to be be on this uh, this show with me, especially talking about this one, because also, I'm not sure if you knew this, you're gay. Did I just out you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's a thing. It's a thing. And, and, <laughs> and I bring that up because you've educated me a lot about the celluloid closet. You always seem to have a lot of knowledge about the actors of Hollywood of the Golden Age who were either homosexual or bisexual how they hit it, how the studios hit it. And it was just a part of film history that I didn't know a lot about. And you know a lot about that. And that kind of plays into the theme of this film as its main star, Salminio. Yeah, he he was bisexual and uh, had had many relationships with men and women during his life. So definitely, definitely someone that was in that closet. So with this film and the the subject matter that it, it represents, he kind of was the perfect guy for this role and we'll delve into that deeper, but yeah, like it, it really felt like it was tailor made for him. Oh yeah, definitely. I, 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 I would love to know. And some of this just at this point may be lost to history, which sucks, but I'd love to know who else was considered for the role, if anyone. Right. And, and if, if, if he was, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they, if he was their first choice. I've, I've never read a biography on Salminio and there's very little history written down about this film because it was kind of a throwaway picture. It came out at a time where I feel if it had come out maybe two or three years later, it would have had more of an audience. But 1965, you know, people were still shocked by Psycho, you know, the kind of massaged and tenderly treated subject matter of that where Norman's not truly a transvestite. He just dresses up like his mother when he commits crimes. Here we have a a character that I feel would be like the next step of Norman Bates. Like, like this should mm. be this should have been like a Norman Bates type character that would be looked at in film history that way. 
and he plays it so well too. Yet again, this film seems kind of to have just been lost to history. Yeah, it. I mean, and that that's sad because if you if you look at the stars of the film, I mean, it's got to like two major people that I feel like anybody who and you you don't even have to be like really really well versed in film history, but you know if you say who's in the film, people would know who these people are. Like yeah. um, Blaine Stretch. I think most people would know her as Jack Donahue's mom in Thirty Rock, and so very fascinating to see her in there. Um, directed by Joseph Cates who did a lot of TV work, but after this did not get a lot of film work as a director, which is sad because this film is very well directed. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, as you know, he is the father-in-law to Phoebe Cates, my girl crush, who my daughter is named after. And I did not know that until I watched this film and started doing research. I'm like, Oh my God. Yeah. That was, that was so cool to kind of learn some of that history on it. But, but yeah, he, uh, he, apparently this was one of three films that he actually made. Everything else is TV credits. And I think this is probably the, uh, the the film that dives into the most controversial for its day subject matter. Yeah, for sure. And we can jump into that. So kind of just to give like the, the first act synopsis to our viewers who haven't seen it. And I've been giving like warnings at the end of each episode of like, this is the film that we're doing next week. I've been putting it on social media. So if you want a spoiler-free experience, watch the film. It's free. It's on Tubi. It's on YouTube. It starts with a character named Nora, and she is a cocktail waitress or a hostess at a New York City nightclub. She has a kind of shady past. Apparently, she was like an aspiring actress who may or may not have been abused by the system and is now kind of gun-shy of pursuing that career. So she's kind of like in a holding stage in her life, and this is where she's working now at this, at this discotheque. And she has a very powerful by the numbers boss played by Elaine Stritch, who also kind of looks after her. There's kind of like this foster mom mentality. She wants to make sure that Nora's not messed with. She keeps all the riffraff off her. She's got a bouncer who's deaf and dumb that really looks after her, kind of chases all the sleazoids away, which is kind of one of the points of this movie. She kind of just attracts danger unwillingly. She's not putting out any signals. In fact, it almost seems like she's asexual. Yeah, I, I remember watching the movie and, and just saying, oh my gosh, this poor girl, she's getting all the attention from everybody she doesn't want it from. She just wants a casting director to notice her and she's getting like all of the quote-unquote, I'm going to say quote-unquote shady characters or uh, you know immoral characters because there's there's some stuff that we'll, we'll discuss coming up, but... Uh, she just gets the attention from like the, the sexual deviance for some reason. Yeah. And it's interesting. Like I said, she doesn't put that out there. And maybe that's one of the reasons why she gets it. Like there's something to be said. And again, this is two males talking about this who really don't understand the female perspective. This is just my interpretation of how the film presents it. She is gorgeous. Like this is an actress, Julia Prowse. She is stunning. I would say she could be considered like the Angelina Jolie of her day. Did not get a lot of lead film roles during her career. A lot of TV work, a lot of bit parts, a lot of, you know, maybe mistress parts. But this is like her only real meaty leading role. And for as gorgeous as she is in this, as sexually stunning as she is, again, she doesn't put out those signals willingly. She just can't help but being attractive and alluring to, like you said, 
these sleazy characters, which again, we're talking about 1960s New York City, kind of like in the nightclub district. So obviously that's what's going to be out there. Yeah. And um, you make a really good point with that. Like she's got this unknown past Mm -hmm. as far as being an actress goes. And, you know, maybe she's had other things happen to her because you notice the first time she gets the call, she's she's not the the innocent little like, oh, oh my gosh, what was that? But she gets this call and her reaction is, you're not going to talk to me that way. Mm-hmm. You know, how dare you? You know, so you almost get this idea that she's been toughened up by whatever she's been through in the past and that she's not going to put up with it. She knows how to say no. Yeah, she knows how to say hell no. My friend Ian from the Cult Connections podcast joined me for a conversation on 1945's Detour by Edgar Ulmer. One of my favorite film noirs, we call this one a road noir. It is free right now on Tubi and YouTube to watch. This is one of the films that I highly recommend you seeking out. And here is one of my favorite moments from that conversation. Now, now I don't want to make any any sort of judgments on on the um, uh, their sort of police in their Nevada. I take it they are. I think that's yeah. I think they're in Nevada, but on the yeah, because they have to hit the state line. Yeah, I mean, I know we see lots of sort of media stories about the uh, their sort of police over in uh, the states and some of the things that they maybe don't do quite so well they, they, when it comes to sort of things like this. But I'm like, why don't you just flag them down or, or wait <laughs> or give them a phone and explain what happened? Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, come on. You know why? Why do it? Why make your why make your situation even worse? So, you know, we know he's not guilty, but you know, hiding the body and they're taking his car is going to make you look even more more guilty than than you might do already. So why why make it worse for yourself? But he he does it. He makes the situation worse. I feel that you know that just kind of plays on his character of being such a weak person because. I'm not sure if you've ever done this, but like you can buy a bag of ice at the store. Usually it's outside by the entrance or the exit to the store and Uh you pay for it. You take your cart, you grab your ice and you go home. And there's been times where I forget to pay for the ice and I walk and I grab the ice. I'm like, oh, my goodness, I forgot to pay for this. And me, I go back. Here's a dollar or pay for it. But there's that moment where I'm like, I can just put this in my cart and no one would know the difference. I think that maybe he's got a little bit of that where he's like, I really need money. I really need to get to LA. I need to get there fast. Maybe this is the right decision. Like a decision he would never make in his life all of a sudden seems achievable. And he gets a little bit of energy from that because we see it throughout the film because the very Uh next scene is he's at the state line of Nevada to California and he has to do the, the state inspection as he goes in. He's got Haskell's ID, and they kind of look alike. And back then, they didn't have uh, photographs on the driver's license. So all he knows is that he kind of has a similar build, similar you know skin color, fits the description on the, the driver's license. So the state inspection, they look at his car. They look at his ID. He answers the right questions. Yes, I'm Haskell. Yes, I'm coming from New York City. And they let him go. So now that has just added to his little boost of false confidence. He's like, oh, I just got away with two things. I just got this guy's body ditched in the desert, and now I just fooled the cops. Things are going well for me. And you actually see him smile and feel good about himself, even though two terrible things he's just done. He actually, for the first time in his life, feels like he's accomplished something. Um, I just wanted to make an observation here about about this. And this 
that scene actually where he is uh, stopped and he's, uh, he's at the state lines, that absolutely fascinated me because of obviously Britain's Britain's a small lake country and I was like, oh, but you actually, you know, it's almost like you have to go through sort of passport, uh, uh, their sort of control mm-hmm. there to cross their state lines or or you did back then. And I was like, if we had to do that here, you would you would be stopped every every half an hour because mm-hmm. our, our states are so small. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, <laughs> I was absolutely fascinated by that as a as a British viewer. I was uh, I was like, really, you had to do that? I mean, I've never had to. I know that like you know truckers and stuff like that have to because they have to like <laughs> check their the weight of their their freight and things like that. But yeah. who knows? I, I don't know. I'm not super familiar <laughs> of the state line processes of the 1940s. But you know, it's a good plot driver because again, it 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 tells us more about Al and who he is and who he thinks he can be. Just when he thinks that. It's all sunshine and roses for him. We are introduced to Vera, played by Ann Savage. He, again, oh, it's, he is like seconds away from not picking her up. He's at the fill station. She's out on the side of the road and his confidence is up. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to give this girl a ride where he could have easily just been like, man, I got to just book it to Los Angeles to see my girl. Why would he pick up this girl? Another, a bad decision that Al makes. And she's not even nice to him asking for a ride. Like she's she's ferocious from the beginning. And the second <laughs> she gets in the car and the second they start driving, you see in his face, and it's really well acted by him for being a B-movie actor and this being like a B-movie noir film, you see it in his eyes. He's like, oh shit, what did I just do? Now, episode number five of the Cultworthy Classic brought my friend Leo of the Movies on Weed podcast to the show to talk about one of our favorite comedies of all time, the ever-celebrated Duck Soup by the Marx Brothers. And cinematically, you know, the film does a lot of interesting things. Like, I didn't notice it until, like, the third time I watched it. Groucho breaks that fourth wall a lot of times. Like, he'll... he'll He'll do some jokes with with the people on the screen, and then he'll look at the audience and kind of like deliver the punchline and breaks the fourth wall. And he's the only character that does that. Yeah, yeah, and that that tripped me out a lot too. Being the fact that it's uh, well, it's I mean, how old is this movie? I mean, 1933. Breaking, 1933, and he's already breaking the fourth wall back. And I mean, nowadays it's what guarantee you're gonna get it in a Deadpool movie. But it's like, dude, Groucho was doing it before then. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, we, we've kind of left out, and I think it's not that uncommon. We left out the fourth Marx Brother. We left out Zeppo. Zeppo. And Zeppo. that's kind of like a common trait. Doing research on this, and I kind of knew this a little bit, he's always been known as, like, the unfunny Marx Brother. Like, he never really does a lot of comedy. Like, if Groucho's the straight man, Zeppo's, like, the dead man. Like, he really doesn't do much. And in this this film, his character barely even exists. And it was the last time he performed on screen with the Marx Brothers. You know, they had like their big five films and Zeppo was always a part of it in a very small way. And then after this, they kind of just kicked him out, you know, and it's not really that surprising. I feel bad for the guy. But how do you be a fourth man in that group where you've got Groucho and all of his witty one-liners, Chico, who's kind of like the mix of Harpo and Groucho, where he has a lot of physical comedy, but can also shoot those one-liners back, and then Harpo being what he is, just this enigma of a performer. 
there really was no room for Zeppo. If Groucho was a straight man, I mean, Zeppo was the assistant. I mean, he, I mean, there's that, there's that one scene where they're, t they're, they're going back and forth about a joke that uh, he says something about Tarantino. He's a very sensitive man. Mm -hmm. He says, one time I said something in his presence, he got offended and I got hit. That just that setup between him and Groucho going on it was just brilliant. The way they set it up and the way they completed, they're all like, so what, what exactly did you say? Then uh, he whispers in Groucho's ear. Groucho just slaps him. Yeah. Like, Who told you that? It's like, where'd you hear that? It's like, you told me. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. but the way, yeah, because it, it seems like at the same time, he was the only one that could really blend in with just the madness that was the 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 Marx Brothers, where everybody else, you could always see that they kind of like stood out. You could see that, you know, they're actors among them. I mean, you know, especially when you're among your brothers, you're going to be acting extra silly. And he was that one guy. He was always, he was the straight man. He wasn't as wacky as all of them, but somehow he just kind of, you could, you could see the balance, the needed balance, which I mean, I, I, I get they got rid of him, but you make a really good point in that. And I think one of the reasons why this film kind of was his last one is because it is the most ridiculous and outlandish of them. At least the other films were set in a somewhat normal reality. And this one's set like in two fantasy countries with a ridiculous war going on. Having that kind of fourth guy, that kind of like set up and punching bag guy, this movie was just too big to have that character and maybe that's why he ended up not being in any future ones is like he kind of didn't prove as useful in this world that they've created as the reality that the other films were in, where he was like a more normal character that could blend in in a normal world. And those three were the weirdos. But this movie is just all weird. Episode number six covered a film that was highly disturbing and controversial in its day especially because it starred teen sensation Haley Mills, who was hot off her success of The Parent Trap. This was 1968's psycho thriller Twisted Nerve, where my guest Shane of the Shane and I podcast joined me to talk about this first-time watch for him. This is one of my favorite moments of that conversation. Martin is the way he is because he is the secondary child after a child with Down syndrome. Again, this is kind of I guess you would call it pseudoscience, like they don't really want to have you take this as fact. It's just their way of a plot driver. Right. But that's kind of how I got that's kind of how I got it. It was just a way to kind of drive home the fact that Martin's not all there. Exactly. It's like they don't come out and say it's like a Down syndrome person. It's like they use this term that's like antiquated. I don't think they could use it. I could I don't think they could get away with using that term these days. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. Like and and like I feel uncomfortable saying it, but it's the way it's portrayed in the film. And yeah. I feel like even they were uncomfortable saying it that way because they did put that disclaimer at the top of the movie. Yeah. You know, feels now that like there is a lot more to Martin than what appears, but she might be too late because as we switch to where Martin is now, he is in the woodshed behind with no shirt on, with no shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> sawing wood i think out of just sexual tension is the way i yeah now... no because the lady because the maid asked him to go get some wood for the fire before oh that's right he, when he came home 
she he was like, where's Susan? Where's Susan? And the maid was like, oh, you want to make yourself useful? Go chop some wood. We need some wood for the fire. Mad. Yeah, he's getting a lot of frustrations out. And this is where we realize that there really is a lot more to Susan's mom. All of our instincts were correct. She yeah. She sees him without his shirt on. She's day drinking. She's in her negligee. She goes out to the woodshed and just starts laying on the sexual energy against him. Yeah, it was like, and that was another one that was like, you just kind of watch it and you're like, oh, that's a little uncomfortable. <laughs> and what makes it like even that's... more uncomfortable is that he obviously doesn't want it. Exactly. That's what, that's what I was going, that's what I was going with. It's like, he did, he just is trying to ignore her and she's just like throwing herself at him. And it's he like, keeps, oh. he keeps working on that piece of wood and cuts his hand while he's doing it. To me, the way I interpreted it is that he sees the blood and that blood is a trigger for him to want more. She reaches into his pants to get the handkerchief and it's oh so seductive. And then he goes after her with the hatchet. Yeah, it's something, of, I, I'm telling you, throughout the movie, it's something about the the, the, the region down there. And like every time it's like, I don't know if it's like you said earlier where it's like he feels like he's inadequate down there or what, but I mean, they play that, they play that throughout the movie. If you catch it throughout the movie, they play that. We're in the shit now because yeah, he's, her body's in the woodshed. He knows what he wants to do now with Susan. And at this point, the screenwriter guy comes home because earlier he was asked to leave and he's like, oh, I get it. She doesn't want to fool around with me anymore. She wants to fool around with this Georgie kid. So yeah. he's kind of there for like his last day before he's kicked out and he's drunk because he got fired. He notices that the woodshed is open and he goes and peeks inside and finds what's going on. Yeah. He gets all of that just tears it. He gets all messed up over it. I mean, I guess I would too, if I walked in there and there was a chopped up body in there, but. Oh, especially if it's, it's someone well that you were intimate with. And it's well played. He plays it well. Like, he plays not only a drunk guy well, but a drunk guy that just finds a body well. Like, the whole cast in this movie is so good. Susan rushes home. She's been given strict instructions to call her medical student friend or the police if anything shows up that, like, Martin or Georgie is there. She runs into her room only to find that Martin was hiding behind the door and locks her in with him. And he, he, she runs into I, when I, she runs into the room, and then she finds all the clothes cut up, like he had cut all of her clothes and just lays out one the white, white dress. dress. On the bed. Yeah, and then he, then he locks it. Oh god, that's so good. The white dress, and it's like we talked earlier about him getting an inch and going for the mile. He definitely goes for it here because, for one, he's got a gun. Yeah, he's got a knife. And he puts out this white dress for her because it is her wedding dress, according to yeah. him. Yeah, he's going for the whole shebang now. He's, he's, he's absolutely lost it now. Now, about a year ago, Severin Films released a collection of folk horror films that I found absolutely incredible. And one of my favorite films in that box set was the Russian classic called V. Now, it had been available on streaming for a minute in several different dubs and versions, but this was like the definitive one. And when I saw this film, it blew my mind how influential it was to visual directors like Terry Gilliam and Sam Raimi. And joining me on that episode was my friend Rob from the Cadaver Dogs podcast for this first time watch by him. And this was one of my favorite moments of that conversation, talking about 
the influences that we saw of this film on future fantasy and horror films like Labyrinth and The Evil Dead. Yeah, V is kind of cartoonish. He's cool. Like, it's fun. And the whole thing does is like kind of reminiscent of like these like uh, pictures depicting like Dante's circle of hell. Yeah. You know, where it's like hyper surreal and there's like a lot of shit going on because a lot of the time when you see this stuff, there's a lot of close ups. You see a monster here and there. But this really looks like an elaborate fresco painting. What is the name of that festival where like people reenact art and classic art, but it's like people in poses? They make fun of it in Arrested Development. It's like this festival that some towns do where they'll say they'll have like Michelangelo's birth of Adam or whatever, creation of Adam. But it's actually real people posing as, as the art. They're dressed oh. up and they're they're painted like the art. It reminds me of something like that, and then the art mm. comes to life mm. and attacks you. It's like the, your worst nightmare in that sense. Now, to give the people an idea of like what V looks like is like think of something from Labyrinth or think of something from Never Ending mm. Story. You know, and again, when we're talking about influential films and influential set pieces and art design. That whole last scene, we've seen definitely people take influences from that in future films. Like if I watch Neverending Story, I could probably pick out five creatures that look like the creatures we see in the climax of this film. Same with Labyrinth. I feel there's a lot of yeah. there's a lot of um, parallel thought in this creature design, and that's why, like to me, this film was such an amazing discovery because, like, okay, 1967. This is probably a film that played only at art houses or maybe mm-hmm. like film school libraries. Mm-hmm. Like this wasn't, ex- I looked it up. This really wasn't accessible until 2001. So we got a really? lot of, on, on home media at least. Wow. So yeah, that's, there's a lot of things that I'm like, oh my God, did, did Frank Oz see this film? Did Jim Henson see this film? I mean, even some Monty Python stuff, some Terry Gilliam stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like there's a lot of that in this movie. Yeah, I I did get that vibe of like the stone eating creature from Never Ending Story. It's funny that you say that. Yeah, I it, this must have been an influential film in some regard. And and I'm now I'm interested to see some other Soviet era horror films that followed. Are they still in this vein of like criticizing religion and the bygone era or are there are there some more contemporary ones? I really have no idea. Have you seen any other Soviet era film? None of this time. Like, I want to say the first film that I saw Soviet era might have been Solaris, mm. just because there was a criterion of it. You know, Tarkovsky is like the only real Soviet filmmaker I'd seen until like we start seeing more films in the 80s and 90s. Right. And, and in Tarkovsky, the only similarity that I can draw between this film and his work would be maybe the beginning of like Andrei Rubilov when they're all drunk and jumping around and the guys making jokes. Otherwise, they're very, very starkly different types of filmmaking. Yeah. But I mean, after this, man, I definitely want to go back and dig into that. Like this movie was such a, Hmm. it's a springboard for me, you know? Because like Alphaville is what got me really looking into French New Wave films. Like that that film and seeing parts of it in Blade Runner and seeing parts of it in like Children of Men. There's a lot of influence there. So that was kind of like a springboard for me to go back into French New Wave. Yeah, This is a springboard for me to check out Soviet filmmaking, especially horror, gothic, folk tales from the 60s and Mm -hmm. 70s. Like now I'm definitely going to go dig into it. 
episode number 10, one of my favorite episodes of the series. I had Melissa from the Good Evening Podcast back on the show to talk about Michael Powell's highly influential and controversial film, Peeping Tom. She tells him that she wants to be a writer and she's putting together this book about a boy with a magic camera that, you know, it can take pictures and it kind of goes back and like shows everything that leads up to what these pictures he's taking. Like it's a storytelling camera. And the idea of that story just like fascinates him and almost makes him cry because it's just something that really connects with him. Like his life is essentially lived through a camera and the fact that she's asking him to do photos for this book that's so relevant to him, it's beginning to like almost interrupt his modus operandi. Like he doesn't want to potentially live the rest of his life or complete his documentary as a killer when there might be a chance at happiness with a real person. How did you feel about that yeah, connection? Someone, yeah, someone's showing an actual interest in him and he likes her and he doesn't want to you know, hurt her and he wants to get to know her. She's innocent and she literally, she doesn't just like, like put off by him. He's a little strange. He's a little quiet, but she like finds him interesting. She tries to bring him out of his shell as best she can, but he's not, not used to anyone caring about him. Like his dad never did. It didn't seem like maybe his mom did, but then she died and he didn't have anyone to literally be like, how do you feel about this? What are your interests? What are you into? You know, all stuff. So he's got this, this woman here who wants to just get to know him. Yeah. He's so used to living through this camera, which I kept having this thought of like, man, nowadays he would just be glued to that iPhone. Uh, yeah. He was just, <laughs> if uh, he would just have all these videos to go back and watch. Who, who knows? This might end up being made through like the eyes of a TikToker. Who knows? Yeah. I, I think I think he's torn at this point where he's not sure because he, he has this opportunity to go, you know, on the straight and narrow a little more. But can he quell his desires and his the things he's already done? Like she has no idea. Now, episode 16 brought some much needed humor to the show as my friends Scott and Frankie from the Shoot the Flick podcast join me to talk about one of my favorite comedies of all time. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I don't think they expected this film to be as big as it was. So it was kind of like, in my opinion, uh, a college student handing in his thesis last minute. He kind of bullshitted it. He's like, oh, hopefully I get a C so I can move on to the next class. And then he gets an A and he's like, oh, shit. Like now I've got expectations. And I feel that's what happened here because the movie is funny. The movie is good, but the movie's got problems. Money and success in the box office fixes problems. And after this movie came out, all of a sudden they had Abbott and Costello meet the mummy, meet the invisible man, meet the wolf man, like all these different, Jekyll and Hyde. These guys were on their way out. They were about to break up. And then this film becomes a hit. And now they're like, oh shit, now what are we going to do? And they ride this train of monster movies. I mean, and I think the second act is a very good example of not really caring how the film really turned out because the second act kind of sucks. Second, I couldn't even tell you like what exactly happens in the second act. I know they go to the castle and then they're like, hello everyone. These are all our characters. And then they all go to a masquerade ball. Why they go to a masquerade ball. What is the purpose of the masquerade? I don't know. So, Who's throwing this thing? I don't know. He's Why are can, we here? So Abbott can wear a wolf mask. That's it. Oh be right. Accused of murder. That whole thing is weird. That's all. But that never gets really cleared it up. It doesn't. First of all, the idea that anyone under the clear blue sky would think that a skinny 
Bud Abbott in a wolf mask is the same person as a f- like a, a a bulky ass Lon Chaney with fur all over his face in the best like got to go glue I've ever seen. Great glue job there, guys. But like, yeah, there's no like it doesn't make sense. The mask is plastic. Like you can knock on it and it echoes. Like it's not the same thing. Exactly. No, he. I think so he nailed it right weird. on the head. Is like. That masquerade ball is just a plot driver to get Bud Abbott in a Wolfman mask. Like, I can't think of any other reason. That's that's it. And to get blamed for murder, right. like he said. Again, I don't think that they were really trying on this one. But there's so much of it that works that a lot of people just look right past it. Now, if you haven't listened to the Geeky Dad podcast... You got to get on that right away. My friend Raphael and his two kids, the Multiverse Kids, talk about the MCU. They talk about Batman. They talk about Star Wars. And it's just one of the most adorable podcasts out there. I had him on the show to talk about one of the OG superhero movies way ahead of its time, 1966's Batman the Movie. And it has the best scene in, uh, that I ever thought I'd ever seen a movie with Batman. It's the bomb scene. <laughs> when he's running around with the bomb. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. Now, uh, a lot of people uh, compared that scene in uh, The Dark Knight Rises with the bomb scene also oh, yeah. as a homage to that. You know? Well, his line in that is hilarious. He says something like, there's some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he was like foreseeing the future because the movie did bomb, right? Yeah, he saw, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the movie did bomb. So yeah. how, how we start off with the story is the the rogues gallery. So you've got the Joker, the Penguin, mm-hmm. the Riddler, and Catwoman all conspiring to kidnap this guy named Commodore Schmidlap, who is, mm, yeah. he's skippering this vessel that has a secret technology on board to dehydrate Pretty much anything. <laughs> now, this is kind yeah. of this is kind of funny to me because it reminded me of the plot point in the first Batman Begins. They steal a oh, secret yeah. technology that does the opposite. Yeah. You know, it'll yeah. with with the with the water. I was like, oh, that's interesting. That I didn't uh, think of that. Yeah, <laughs> they're mm-hmm. they're kind of like channeling <laughs> the technology from Batman '66. <laughs> <laughs> and you got to see the Batcopter, the Batboat. <laughs> the bat cycle. You yeah. get all the fun vehicles. Yeah. And so they, they kidnap this guy and they make him feel like he's still on a ship, but he's actually in like a warehouse hideout where they've got like the henchmen blowing fog across the window and rocking it back and forth. So the guy feels like he's on the ocean and they're bringing him tea the whole time. They are using his, his vessel and his technology to create this, this idea that's going to come a little bit later in the film, their, their villainous plot but Batman mm-hmm. and Robin are out there with their Batcopter trying to find this vessel. And as Batman's going down the Bat ladder from the Batcopter, he's attacked <laughs> by a shark. Hand me down the shark repellent bat spray. Bat repellent. And to finish it up, One of the most controversial films that I ever covered on this show was just a couple weeks ago, episode number 21. 
and that was Joe from 1970. I talked to my friends Joe and Jack from DeRazzle about this film, and it was an interesting conversation because normally we are all laughs and chuckles. Sadly, this is the show that has the smallest listener count because generally anything that Joe, Jack, and I do together does really well for me and for them. Maybe it just wasn't the right time to release this episode, but it is one of my favorite conversations about a very important film, so I would suggest go check out that episode and check out that film, Joe from 1970. I'm not surprised, because especially considering like that last frame, the last moment before the credits actually start to roll, if you're laughing up through that point, like I have to imagine like you see what happens there, what and how do you not just stop and like kind of sit with that for a minute and think like what what did I find enjoyable about that? Mm-hmm. What did I find what did I find like laughable about that, given how that like how that just turned out? If something I had made were to cause violence when what I was trying to say was we don't need violence, I would be really upset. Yeah. yeah. And I can only think what kind of uncomfortable setting that theatrical experience would have been for a lot of people. Because let's not forget that this was a sleeper hit. It was yeah. it had a budget of barely over a hundred thousand dollars in 1970s dollars. And at the end of the day, pulled in like $27 million. Like it was a hit. It took a while to get there. an absurd gap. Like that, that, holy shit. (laughs) It's bonkers. That's why I'm like, how have people not heard about this film? Like it did really well. I think absurdly well. It did really well, but because it took so long to get there, it didn't have all Mm. of that hype right at the beginning. It didn't have like all the posters and the marquees. American Beauty was not a huge hit right off the bat. It kind of took a while to get people talking about it and then they get bigger and bigger releases. You know, it's kind of like that thing, that kind of sleeper hit, but, um, it had to build that groundswell. But like, just to think, like I was saying earlier, if, if you were in your twenties watching this film and if you were in your forties watching it in the same theater, that, that divide, uh, that political divide, that morality divide, also just the different definitions of what entertainment is. Like, were you watching this film to see people get shot or were you watching this film yeah. to see like a character drama? And we still deal with issues of like that today in films. It's it's truly staggering to me, just like the 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 generational parallels presented in this film, and like the way they play out, and like the conclusion that they come to in in those final moments, compared to all of the generational bickering and generational squabbling and and conflict that we see today. It's just. It's so wild to think that like like the baby boomers were in the position that like us and Gen Z are in now back yeah. then compared to like compared to like the greatest generation or the silent generation. Like to, to just kind of see that entire dynamic copied and pasted <laughs> like several several decades later, it feels insane. It feels absolutely bonkers. And yet here we are. <laughs> here we are. And and here's, you know, now it's time for me to like jump on a soapbox for a second and I'll let you guys do yours too. But this this film, I mean, we're talking about a time where everyone was getting their news off of TV and newspapers. So ideas and let's say racist thoughts, insecurities about your government, those were all shared in places like bars or the dinner table. Mm-hmm or maybe on the assembly line at work. But now we've got Twitter. 
now we've got Facebook and we've got a multitude of so-called news channels that are mostly just op-ed pieces that are really just kind of changing people's ideas and political behaviors. So where in this film, Joe, we're seeing like one character and how it's affected the other character's life. We are now living in a world where we're surrounded by Joes. Our uncle's a Joe. Our brother's a Joe. Our boss at work is a Joe. And that scares the shit out of me. And we're pretty much caught up. Episode 22 and 23 brought the court jester and producers to the show with my friends Daniel Hess and Justin from the Movie Wire podcast, but those are so recent and they had great success, so I don't need to push those. Mostly I want people to go back and listen to some of the earlier episodes to kind of just get an idea of what the mission statement of this podcast was to highlight obscure films and cult classics made before 1970. Get them rediscovered. Get them back into the zeitgeist. Let's create new cult followings with the millennial group, with the Generation Z group, who are so distracted right now by social media and what's on the news and whatever garbage they're pushing into movie theaters right now. We need to return to the classics. We need to bring the classics back. So once again, my name is Antonio Palacios. This is the Cult Worthy Classic. You can find me on Letterboxd, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as my website, thecultworthy.com, where I've got reviews, blog updates, as well as links to my cult-worthy podcasting partners. Thank you for joining me on this clip show. Episode 25 will kick off another chunk of great interviews, reviews, and deep dives into these cult classics made before 1970. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And have a great week. <laughs>